Hey guys, this is Nick. I just wanted to let you know there were a few technical issues that happened during the show. We had to adjust them on the fly. So if you hear some issues with sound quality uh, for the microphones, just let it slide this time around. So, but other than that, just enjoy the show and have a good time and we appreciate it. Thanks. For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. I am Nick, and our guest today is webcomic writer, comedian, author. His bio on his website lists DJ, video game writer, and pretend ghost bellhop. I, we're going to have to find out about that. Please welcome to the show, Scott Mayer. Scott, how are you doing? Welcome. Doing well. How are you? Good. I'm glad you were able to join us. All right, tell us... I, Tell us about the ghost bellhop. I'm just, I just got to know. I will. First, okay. I should mention it's Meyer, not Mayor. Mayor. That's not Meyer? a big deal. Yes, Meyer. Meyer. Like Oscar or Fred. Okay. You probably okay. don't have Fred Meyer where you come from. but I, uh, I have a, you know, and I should have known. I have a friend whose name is Meyer and they've corrected me and now I feel like an no. idiot. No, don't, don't. There's, there's 19 different ways to spell it and three or four different ways, ways to pronounce it. But, uh. But uh, yeah, um, forget pretend ghost bellhop. Pretend ghost uh, bellhop. I'm betting you have not been to Walt Disney World. I have not. Ah yes, uh, I was for a while a, a cast member and a trainer at the Tower of Terror, which is, to my money, as far as I'm concerned, the finest theme park attraction ever devised by the human mind. Okay. But uh, but part of the theming of that attraction is that all the cast members who work there wear this incredibly elaborate uh, uh, bellhop costume. And, and and you're picturing like pants and a shirt, but the thing had brass buttons and an agulet, which is a braided rope on one shoulder and a pillbox hat. And uh, you had your choice between an Eisenhower jacket or a full length trench coat. It was, it was, there are, there are military organizations that do not have a uniform as nice as the bellhop costume for the Tower of Terror. Wow. How long did you work there? How long did you do that for? Uh, I was at Walt Disney World for nearly a decade. I was at the Tower of Terror for something like three to four years. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Uh, what did you do there as a trainer? Like, like what was your... Like, how did uh, you <laughs> tell me, I, tell me more. I went from operating the ride to when new cast members would get hired on. I was the person who showed them how to operate the ride. Basically. Okay. Okay. And when I say operate the ride, there's always 8 million times more to it than you're picturing. You know, you picture telling people what number to stand on and pressing the go button, but it's always a lot more complicated than that. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. 
Are there do, okay? Do you have any? Do you have any crazy horror stories or 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 anything you can share about about working there? Because I mean, there's so many stories about that place. Yeah. Well, no real horror stories. Oddly enough, the Tower of Terror left me with no horror stories. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, when we get celebrities come through, uh, they they go and do a lot of uh, trouble when they're training you. To, uh, to train you not to acknowledge that you've got a celebrity. doesn't matter who it is. You're supposed to treat them exactly like you would treat anybody else. Right. And uh, especially if I had a story that would get someone into trouble, I would not be telling you this story. Right. But, uh, but at Unload, the Tower of Terror is built so that the guests get the impression that they're riding on an elevator. The whole idea of the Tower of Terror is that we spend you know, the entire queue convincing you the elevator is going to kill you then we put you on the elevator. Right. And and the one design flaw of the Florida version of the ride is that if guests get to where you're going to put them on the ride and then they decide they don't want to ride, uh, we always have a way to show someone out. You're never forced to get on a ride at Walt Disney World. Nice. But the way they designed that ride, the only way to, per- to get the person off of the loading floor is to then put them on an elevator. So, so it's, it's an hour of the elevator is going to kill you. Then, oh, you don't want to ride? Fine. Here's the elevator. <laughs> at which point the screaming begins. But, <laughs> but at the unload, you're standing basically at what looks like an elevator door where the elevator will open and people get off. Uh, and the intercom goes off and I get warned if there's going to be a huge celebrity, they don't want you to act surprised. Because, uh, like I said, you're not supposed right. to. Uh, and uh, and in this case, I don't think it's going to hurt anything to tell you. I get the intercom and they say Michael J. Fox and his family are on the next elevator. Nice. And and I'm of the age that Michael J. Fox is a huge big deal. Right, right. And I'm like, don't be surprised that Michael J. Fox is coming. Don't be surprised that Michael J. Fox is coming. And also, for some reason, the Tower of Terror, like every third elevator that opens, they, some of the people riding try to then startle you. Like the door will open and they'll all yell, ah, and I pride myself on the fact that they never startled me. I always just stared at them as like, right this way, do exit right this way. <laughs> so, so the door opens, it's Michael J. Fox, his wife, and one of their kids. Uh, door opens, I'm about to say right this way, making sure not to be startled by the fact that it's Michael J. Fox, and his wife goes, ah, and that's the one time I, was, I jumped so high, actually, my pillbox <laughs> hat hit the top of the door and pushed down like on Bazooka Joe or something. <laughs> so, so I'm proud to say I made Michael J. Fox laugh. Not that's great. proud of how I made him laugh, but I am proud to say I made him laugh. That's great. That's You've had a myriad. I mean, that's not, that's not the only one. You've had a myriad of different jobs. I mean, we, we listed them, you know, DJing. Uh, was that like radio DJ or like music radio? radio. radio. Not, okay. not, not weddings or anything. Right. It was, yeah, it, it, my, my career up until novels was a kaleidoscope of failure is how right. I like to put it. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I was a uh, radio DJ. Uh, I had the 1130 to 6 a.m. shift at an easy listening station in Prosser, Washington, you know, playing Neil Diamond for Insomniac Farmers. <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah, I was not well suited to that job. Okay. What, what, what was it about it? Just like the talking or the playing the music or listening to the music? The listening to the music, the trying to stay awake, 
Okay. Uh, trying to stay awake was a problem through the middle of the night. Yeah. And the fact that, like I said, I was playing easy listening did not help with that. Yeah. You know, it's uh it's a Paul Anka does not help one to stay awake. <laughs> yeah. What uh what got you into doing the writing? Oh, I had always wanted to write a novel. Uh I, I had always known that I wanted to try it someday. And I I I had this idea. The idea that was basically the first Magic 2.0 book, off to be the wizard. Uh, but uh, what what really uh, what really um, gave me the impetus to uh, finally get off my butt and do it was I had my web comic, which was doing pretty well. You know, I was never the web comic was never going to be more than like a part time job. Yeah. Uh, but but I was enjoying it, and I had a pretty good following. I was getting about five thousand uniques a day at that time. And then I read an article in Wired Magazine about how there was this big change in the publishing world, about how for generations, the hard part had been getting the book published and in print or you know available for sale to people. That was the hard part. And once you got that, your publisher would handle marketing and that sort of thing, and you would take your chances. But because of self-publishing and uh, Kindle, uh, that had changed, and now suddenly it was trivially, trivially easy to have the book be available for sale to everyone in the English-speaking world. Right. But now the hard part was marketing. And I realized that I had my webcomic, and I could market to a captive audience of people who considered themselves my fans simply by hitting send. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I realized, you know, this is the best chance I'll ever have. I just have to make sure I make the book as good as I possibly can. So I spent several months writing off to be the wizard and, uh, and uh, self-published it at first. And it, you know, I was very lucky and it did well enough and people liked it enough that I then came to the attention of 47 North who uh, offered to publish it and gave me a three book deal. And, you know, that was like, I heard a starter's pistol going off in my head. It's right. like, okay, this is an opportunity. Something is working and it's something I enjoy. So I just put all of my effort into that. Right. And isn't, uh, I could be wrong. Isn't 47 North uh, related to Amazon at, for, in yes. some way? Or are they yes, a part is, of them? It is the science fiction imprint that is owned by Amazon, which uh, gives them certain tremendous advantages when it comes to publishing and marketing things on Amazon. Right. Uh, uh, regular, uh, traditional bookstores refuse to carry your book so it's got right. its disadvantages but the pros have far outweighed the cons at least in my experience well and especially these days with as we we chalked off well i'm a little bit audiobooks you yeah. know amazon owns audible for crying out loud so i mean there we go when exactly. when you were you good at writing when you were younger uh, in, in high school, I discovered that I was good at writing before that I was just good at boring people by talking for huge, long stretches of time and, uh, telling, uh, um, um, what's the best way to put it? Dubious stories <laughs> as to their veracity. <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, it's, uh, if I didn't have anything interesting to say, I would make something up, Amen which is not great, but it was good, uh, good training for the web comic and then for writing. Right. Definitely. Did you have any inspirations, anything you read as a kid? Did you read comics? Web, yeah, obviously, web comics probably weren't as big of a thing back then, but did yeah. you read regular comics and, and novels oh, when you were younger? Absolutely. When I was, I mean, when I was a kid, 
there were comic books. I was a big Marvel guy. Um, it's nothing against DC. It's just right. it's odd how uh, how uh, there's there's the stuff that people tell you you should read, and then there's the stuff that you discover on your own. Uh, when I was a real little kid, I was handed tons of uh, like like sixties and fifties old um, Batman and Superman comics. Yeah, stuff like you know Superman and the Talking Car, or Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, but before Kirby took it over, and right. and you know Batman comics where they're running on giant typewriters for some reason. And as a kid, I was like, eh, okay. But then when I got a little older and went nuts for Star Wars, I discovered the Marvel run of Star Wars mm -hmm. and then Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. And, you know, so that was that was uh, comic books and then comic strips around the time Bloom County and Calvin and Hobbes and the Far Side all hit their stride. Mm -hmm. I discovered the comics page and that was a huge influence. Okay. Yeah. What is and then then for novels, of course. I mean, anyone who's who's read anything I've written uh, will hear that I was a huge Douglas Adams fan and just say, "Well, duh." Right. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about your webcomic, since we were talking about it. Uh, it was called Basic Instructions. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea was that every comic would be a different set. It started out as a different set of instructions for how to do something you no know human being needs instructions for how to do. But it quickly morphed into the almost, uh, almost like a sitcom of me and uh, my wife, uh, who is the brains of the operation, and my best friend, who is basically life's whipping boy. And, uh, you know, my coworkers, and then I developed a team of uh, superheroes who were all incompetent. And, uh, you know, it just built, it built on its own. And uh, slowly, you know, miraculously, it found a, enough of a following that it following that it was worth continuing. And eventually, like I said, made me about enough income to be a part time job. Right. But it's what allowed me to go part time at Disney World. And not, you know, put all of my work into that and start putting my work into things that I owned and gave me the free time to write off to be the wizard. So yeah. without, without basic instructions, there would have been no magic 2.0. Wow. And the basic instructions was like a, kind of like a satire pseudo funny, make fun of stuff sort of. Cause I, I actually hadn't read it. Uh, oh. I, I, I found out about it obviously uh, afterwards when I was, you know, going through your books and, and chatting with you, uh, to lead up to this, but I hadn't, I hadn't known much about it. And so I'm wondering if, you know, yeah. our, obviously some of our listeners might not know as oh, well. So would not surprise me. Uh, off to be the wizard has, has reached, you know, an order of magnitude, more people than basic instructions mm -hmm. ever did. Uh, but the uh, reruns are still running on basicinstructions.net, And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's humor. It's uh it's a four panel. Uh, every uh, every comic has four panels, and my goal was to have a noticeable attempt of, attempt at humor in every panel. Okay. So it, it's not one of these things. I mean, most comics. I, I say this like I'm casting aspersions. The form is usually you have one joke over the course of three to four panels. I tried to have a joke in every panel, and I, th I think that's one of the things that made it slightly different. Nice. And was there a? I saw something and. 
Lord knows the internet has given me wrong information in the past. So, uh, was what was the connection with Dark Horse? I saw that there did oh, Dark yeah. Horse pick them up or Dark Horse Comics published my first two collections okay. of comic strips back in the day when you would actually go to a Barnes and Noble and buy a collection of comic strips. Right. Back before every comic that was ever written was available online. Yeah. Do they still send them out? Do you still find like do you know if they have have them in comic book stores or things like that or I believe I believe Dark Horse still has a supply of the two books. Okay. Um, I I I it would not surprise me if they're available on Amazon. Uh, the reason I say it would I believe they still have them is because if they ran out, the rights would revert to me. Oh, and okay. I have not heard. <laughs> so somewhere next to the Ark of the Covenant in a warehouse, there is a stack of my first two uh, first two books. There we go, Dark everybody. Horse. Hound Dark Horse to, to buy them all up. Buy them all. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm, I have nothing but goodwill towards Dark Horse. Well, and that's uh, got to be so awesome for you to be a fan of comic books and to have, you know, a pretty big publishing company publish your stuff. Absolutely. I, w I could not believe it when they called me. Uh, when they called with the offer, I, I, it was one of those things where I first tried to make sure that they didn't sound like any of my friends right. to make sure someone wasn't just messing with me. Walk us through that kind of a phone conversation. You know, you're sitting at home and they're, what, the, your phone just rings? They're like, hi, this is Dark Horse? I say I say phone call, but that one was actually an email. Oh, okay. An email from uh, Tim. I'm blanking on Tim's last name. But uh, but Tim was my editor at Dark Horse, and he contacted me and said, hey, I found your comic. I mean, we're interested in publishing a collection of your work, if you're interested, which is one of those, oh, gee, let me think. Yeah. And then uh, then he, uh, because I worked at Walt Disney World back then, for some reason, when you work at Walt Disney World and people know that you have access to free passes to Walt Disney World, they seem much <laughs> more likely to come and visit in person. Right. And uh, uh, So do you still have passes? I just want to know. No, just just no, curious. <laughs> my, my understanding is that even the people who still work there they now have much less access to passes than they did back in the day. Wow. Uh, but it used to be you had almost unfettered access to Walt Disney World and you could easily get friends in. Uh, those days are gone because, uh, because, because it got abused. In fact, while I was working there, they, they had to change the rule that if you got friends into Walt Disney World, you had to stay with them because they had a lot of problems with people getting relatives and friends into Walt Disney World, and then those relatives and friends shoplifting. Oh. <laughs> so that, so that, that got ruined. Yeah. Ruin it for everyone. Yeah, it's just human nature. When we were talking about your, your comics, the basic instructions, you mentioned there was a joke in every panel. Yeah. Did any of those jokes come from your time? Because you, we had talked about it, your time in doing stand-up comedy. Uh, I, I tried, there were a few times that I reused some ideas, Okay. um, but, but, but for the most part, no, uh, for the most part, it was all original material to the comic strip. Just like I have not used stuff from the comic strip in the books, except maybe I think once or twice I've, uh, I've reused a line, but no, I, I try to come up with new stuff. I don't want things to, I don't want people to start to get deja vu. Right. Although I frankly I don't remember ninety nine percent of the stuff I said when I was a stand up comic, so it's possible 
I've accidentally copied myself. How long did you do that for the stand-up comedy? I made a living at stand-up for, I made a living at it for four or five years. I did it for maybe eight or nine, maybe okay. 10. How I do you used get... to say 12, but I think that, uh, that it felt like 12 years, <laughs> but it was more like eight or nine. Yeah. My wife tells me that's, that's Nick math. Cause I do that all the time. It's like, it's this long. It feels like this long. She's like, no, that's Nick math. Don't, <laughs> that's not what it yeah. is. How did you get into that? Uh, that was when I was a teenager. That was the main thing I wanted to do. Okay. Uh, the comic strip and writing a novel were things that I also wanted to try. But my main goal was to become someday a stand-up comedian at the time. Then I did it and I discovered that I am temperamentally not well suited to stand-up comedy. Uh, I am not a night person. I do not enjoy the company of drunk people. Uh, my goal uh, when I first started out was to do, uh, to say that I my goal was to do clean and clever material. Mm -hmm. Sounds like I was super snobby about it. And I right. was not, but I, I, my goal was to not necessarily be, you know, to work blue, to be dirty. Right. But at the Pacific Northwest in the uh, mid nineties, uh, you primarily ended up working in, uh, in bars and taverns in one night stands and doing those uh, you learn to give the audience what they want pretty fast. And that was not, you know, uh, clean material about books you've read. Right. That was, you know, um, the material I ended up doing material that I wasn't terribly proud of over time to audiences that I wasn't necessarily proud of. And it just snowballed from there. So you, did the webcomic. Yep. And that kind of gave you the time to do Wizard 2.0. Walk us through how you get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm writing this thing. I'm going to self-publish it. Yeah. And then getting it out there and, you know, it becoming bit. Obviously, you said that you were trying to, like, get it out to your people that follow your webcomic. And then, of course, it spread from there. Uh, you mentioned Amazon. Uh, the, the 47. 47 books. picks it yeah. up. And where, where do we go from there? Uh, well, I, I, I put the book out uh, and I told my readers, I, uh, I, I priced the book. I mean, from a marketing point of view, the, the phrase would be aggressively. I, I thought fairly. I mean, I'm a first time author. I'm a web cartoonist. This is my first time trying to write a book. I just made it so that, you know, I could tell my readers, hey, look, if you want to support me, this will cost you the cost of a latte and you'll get a book out of it and maybe you'll enjoy it. And then I was lucky. They read it. They enjoyed it. They started leaving me positive comments and enough of them uh, purchased it because I made it inexpensive that I came to. F I don't know that this is what happened. My suspicion is that Amazon pays. Well, I mean, I know Amazon pays attention to what's selling and what isn't. Right. But they, if they see a self-published book doing well i suspect that 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 they, they flag it and someone at uh at amazon is encouraged to read it and see if it's something they want to they want to you know take part in right and uh i just got again an email from an editor at 47 north saying hey we're we're interested in publishing this if you're interested and i'm like well yeah and uh they offered me a three book deal and then 
after signing that, I thought, well, now I have to come up with ideas for two more books in this series. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so I started desperately trying to come up with ideas for the next two books. So for those that don't know, uh, Wizard 2.0 is, I don't know how to get, like sometimes I, I, I explain people this book and I'm like, it's a really cool, fun concept, but how do I say it without giving it away? Um, yeah. And <laughs> like for me, obviously the, the, the interaction, the first interaction between Martin and Philip is kind of, to me, is what makes it kind of cool because the idea of, you know, this guy finding a glitch in the matrix, I guess, is the closest thing I can say uh, to, to, to modify it. And then he's like, you know, I'm going to go back in time and become a, a wizard and use the glitch in the matrix to to make myself an all powerful wizard. And then he comes across a wizard yeah. in that time. Uh, the way the way I usually describe it uh, quickly, the elevator pitch, I guess. Yes, yes. The elevator is, pitch. A guy discovers that he lives in a computer-generated reality and that by, by manipulating this file that he's found that he can change the nature of reality. And he immediately makes such a huge mess that he ends up escaping to the distant past, to medieval England, to hide out, basically, until the, until the heat is off. And uh, he, he figures he'll disguise himself as a wizard back there using his ability to manipulate reality and immediately he finds an actual wizard and then you know discovering things about that wizard and about how how the world works back there that's where the story begins to unfold nice so how did you come up with your next couple books because obviously you said that like this was that and then now because there's six seven books there are now six books in that series. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I just I just thought about things that I enjoy. And uh, basically where the first book left, uh, my hero, Martin, is still living in medieval England. He's got a group of friends now. And uh, I just and basically I saw that I had a group of friends who could have adventures. So I started thinking about what are, you know, it, it sounds like it's not the most creative process in the world, but execution is always much more important than your original idea anyway. Um, I just started trying to think about what what are some things that are involved groups of friends having adventures. And for the second book, the first thing I thought of was Star Trek. Okay. And, uh, and I thought, okay, well, what would an episode of Star Trek be like? What, what are some kinds of episodes of Star Trek? Well, they go to a place and they have an adventure in that place. And I thought, okay, well, the first book, I kind of set up Atlantis as a, uh, another place that exists where magic can be done. So I started trying to come up with a situation where, where they could go to Atl an excuse for them to go to Atlantis. Right. What's an adventure they could have in Atlantis. And then I just built on it from there. And it's like a snowball. Um, I, I've used the snowball analogy like eight times in this podcast, by the way. That's okay. I'm sorry about that. I, I'm, wearing, I'm from Minnesota, and we're getting a blizzard right now, so snowball works. <laughs> Where in Minnesota are you? Uh, Central, by, right by the main, we call them the Twin uh, Cities, St. Paul, Minneapolis area. Yep. When I was a comedian, I used to play Acme on a regular basis. Oh, nice. I, I mean, that's a fairly popular spot, so yeah, I can totally it see is, that. 
it is arguably the best comedy club in the country, as far as I'm concerned. Nice. I don't just say that because they actually hired me. <laughs> uh, Lewis Lee, the guy who runs Acme, really knows what he's doing. Not only as far as running a comedy club, but as far as keeping the goodwill of the comedians without being a pushover to them. Right. He's he's tough but fair, and he he you're you're treated well when you work for for the Acme Comedy Club. It's uh, actually one funny story about being a comedian. Yeah. Uh, often they will put you up in what they call a comedy condo, or at least they would back in the day, back when the economics were different. The club would actually own or rent an apartment, and two or three of the, usually one or two, but sometimes up to three comedians would be staying in this apartment that the comedy club owns. And the one in, in uh, Minneapolis was really nice, but it had been the comedy condo for like 10 years at that point and comedians are not do not tend to be terribly respectful of the uh of the comedy company right. and i actually did a two-week stint there when they were trying to sell the condo so i was i was alone in the place over a weekend where they would be bringing in prospective buyers of the minneapolis comedy condo and it was a nice place right on the river but it was trashed and these people would come in and I would be sitting there in shorts playing Tomb Raider on my laptop. <laughs> and A, they would look at the mess and think that I had created all of it. But B, they would be like, oh, oh this hole in the wall needs to be fixed. And I'm like, Ray Romano made that hole in the wall. <laughs> you know, this, this stain on the floor, that stain contains Doug Stanhope's DNA. How dare you complain about that stain? Yeah, that's I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who finds that amusing. But some poor, some poor schlub purchased that condo and has no idea the bizarre comedy history that took place in it. Should go on like a, a his, get a historian to do like comedy history tours, and then just throw the word haunted in there just to just to yeah, yeah, yeah. haunted comedy because that'll get the people in yeah. and just, just to get on the History Channel. Right, actually. right, exactly. But anyway, um, where was I? We were talking Magic 2.0. We were. Um, yeah. The uh, So anyway, then the second, the third book, I'm like, well, they're in medieval England. What are kinds of things that would happen then? Well, a quest, obviously. Right. And then there was a fallow period. And uh, uh, I wrote actually the fourth book, Fight and Flight. And there was a little weirdness around the publishing of that. Uh, but, you know, dragons seemed like like a fun thing to write about so <laughs> i wrote a whole book about dragons and uh yeah well and it just it almost seems and this this will just go to how well written they are you know it doesn't seem like there was intended to just be one book it seems like the first book was done and you left it because you had plans for uh, the other ones and they just like you know constantly even you get to book four and it's like oh well this ties into book one that little thing was kind of just mentioned there. And now, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, obviously the, at the very beginning, for those that don't know, spoilers, the, you know, the main character tries to make himself a little bit taller and realizes he can do it, but only kind of by manipulating the code. And then, you know, by the time you get to the dragons, there's, you know, that's a whole, that whole concept is starting to get flushed out and, you know, the, the one of the kind of pseudo reoccurring bad guys, maybe not a bad guy, uh, you know, manipulating, yeah. you know, genetics of the people that live in the villages. 
Yes, he he makes a terrible, tragic mistake, and then spends the rest of the series trying to uh, trying to somehow make amends for. And the the best part about that particular character is, like, as a reader, we're conditioned to not trust him, but yep. throughout the like continuously, he's constantly he really is at least it seems so far really is trying to make up for his mistake. But nobody trusts him, including yeah. my, me, the reader. It's like, yeah, no idea. So, yeah, and and I mean, he's st- like I said, he's trying to be the person he thought he was to begin with. He's trying to be the because he thought as he saw himself as this heroic figure, mm-hmm. and then he realized, oh no, wait, you know, I'm awful, and right. he's still trying to make amends and trying to be that person. But he is also the person who on some level thought it was all right to do the things that he did in right. the first book. Right. So he's, he's still, I mean, by the, uh, by the, uh, by the fourth and fifth book, he's, he's got some other people that now he's sort of, you know, uh, working around and working with, and he's still kind of awful to them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he still messes with them on a regular basis for his right. own amusement. Yeah. Cause and- he just, he is that guy. And it's a great character. And that's another thing. Uh, the, the developing reoccurring characters in the series and the new characters that come in, they just seem like they just always fit in. They just fit in. And it's, it's a great thing. So those that are listening, just check out the series. Just check it out. Um, well, A, thank you. And B, I agree, do check out the series. But it, but you flatter me. Thank you. That's well, very that's good to hear. Why you're on the show so we can flatter you. Let's talk a little bit about your, you know, we mentioned that partnership, you know, with the, the publishing company and Amazon. We mentioned the Audible. Obviously, the last book, The Vex Generation, came out Audible only. Uh, is there going to be a physical version of that at any point in time? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, every, uh, the, the fourth, fifth, and sixth Magic 2.0 books and my most recent book, uh, uh, Unrelated uh, Story, Grand Theft Astro, all started out as Audible Originals, mm-hmm. but they are all three available on Amazon as in paper and in ebook. Beautiful. And your narrator, which we yes. were going to have your narrator on uh, for the last episode. By the way, folks, those listening who really were excited to listen to Luke Daniels, Luke Daniels will be coming on April 18th. So don't worry. Right. We have rescheduled. Luke is going to be coming. But here's one more person that can verify how amazing Luke is. Because Luke does the almost all of your well does yeah almost all of your books all of your everything mail I've done everything I've done that has had a male protagonist Luke has done and really the only reason uh, the only reason I didn't request him for the uh, ones with a female protagonist is uh, that him talking in a falsetto would be weird <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's not to cast aspersions at the two women who have done you know the books that I have a female protagonist for they've done an excellent job. But Luke has just been so, such a great partner and has done such a great job on the books. I have tremendous gratitude towards Luke Daniels for making me sound as good as he has. That's true. Yes, definitely. And I, you know, I got to admit, I'm going to admit something to you. This whole thing has a little bit of influence. Um, kind of the, the background character. We have an intro and an outro to the podcast. And the intro character is the voice of a wizardly type character, which is based off of a role-playing game that I play, and I play a wizard character in. But I literally stole the voice for Philip. 
Yeah. Well, and not literally, but because, you know, I'm not Luke Daniels. I will, I could never be as good as him. But whenever I picture in my mind, what does a wizard sound like? What should a wizard sound like? So the intro of the podcast and the outro of the podcast is me at my half-assed chance of trying to pull <laughs> off a Luke Daniels Philip for the intro and the outro of the podcast. And that was inspired by Luke Daniels and your character, Philip. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so there you go. That's, that's, you know, you are, you have inspired. <laughs> well, well, thank you. And I'm doubly, uh, doubly uh, complimented because really as far as, I mean, every character I've ever written is to some extent a version of me in that situation. But as far as being closest to my actual personality, mm-hmm. I am somewhere between Philip and Wallard from my book, Master of Formalities. Okay. And like they are two different parts of my personality, but really the people who know me would tell you that they are the two that are closest to uh, to what I'm like, I think. Well, and Luke also narrates Master of Formalities and that's kind of yes, like a, that's kind of like a, like a futuristic space story, right? Yes. Uh, the I, the idea originally was what if Downton Abbey was set in the Dune universe? Okay. <laughs> that was my original idea. I was uh, I was watching the David Lynch version of Dune, which now we have to specify which version of Dune we right, watched. Right. But there I don't know if you've seen the David Lynch version of Dune. No, I have not. Oh, oh, why are we even talking? We well be watching the David Lynch version of Dune. I'm not I'm not saying that it's good. I think, I think that's like I want like because that's the one that's got Sting in it, right? Yes. Yeah, that's like I'm a big fan of Sting, and I'm always like I gotta watch this movie. Yes. And then every time I start it, I'm like I can't watch this movie. I just oh. can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not alone in that. So uh, I've tried. tried. First time I tried to watch it, I was a little kid, and I did fall asleep. I'll admit that. But uh, but there's a scene. Have you seen the most re- the more recent version of Dune that didn't even know? I haven't. Mostly because I'm like I gotta watch the first one before I watch the new one. <laughs> No, <laughs> I would I would go so far as to say no. You you can go ahead and you can watch the new one. Okay. First. Should I watch the new one or should I just ignore that one too? No, you should watch the okay. new one. It's the good. new one is quite good. Right. And the old one, the old one, I like to say it's it's a, it's a huge, amazing cast and a very talented director with a huge budget. All of them using all of their talents to make a monumental mistake. <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing. You've got Sting, you've got Sean Young, you've got Kyle McLaughlin, you've got Jose Ferrer, for, for for goodness sake, Max von Sydow playing a good guy, right? And uh, and it's meanwhile it's this bizarre movie where at one point they talk about milking a cat. It's the weirdest thing, but but it, but anyway, I was watching that, okay. and there's a character who is sort of the the butler to the bad guy. And I was wondering, what is that guy's day like? And that was that was the beginning of the uh, of the impetus for uh, for Master of Formalities. Nice, and I love the art on the cover as well. I, I see the art and I go, people that are fans of Fallout are going to love this. The Fallout video game series are going <laughs> to love this cover <laughs> and be drawn, be like, I don't know what this book is, but I've got to buy it. I, I, I see what you mean. I have not played Fallout, but I, I see exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's got a certain aesthetic to it. Yeah, it's got that sort of 50s clip art kind of a vibe. Right, definitely. Uh, of course, you've got uh, The Authorities, which is 
a little bit different. I mean, it's, it, it is and it isn't, but it's a little bit different. It's kind of a procedural um, police uh, story, but it's, of course, got a little bit of satire, got a little bit of humor in it as well. Can, you want to tell the, the audience a little bit about that one? Uh, yeah, the authorities. Um, again, I'm going to show my age here, but the, uh, the initial idea of, uh, of the authorities Man, I'm really going to sound old when I say this, but the idea was, what if Niles Crane was forced to act like Jim Rockford? And it's uh, The Rockford Files was a show about a ne'er-do-well uh, mm-hmm. uh, private detective who lived in a trailer and uh, was always getting into fistfights. And Niles Crane from Frasier, the uh, Frasier's even prissier brother. <laughs> and 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 the, the idea was that I, I came up with a situation where, where this guy who was, you know, just a super try-hard, uh, loves his, uh, you know, custom-tailored suits and uh, being trying to be the, the teacher's pet, is forced to behave as if he's, uh, you know, Mel Gibson's character from the uh, Lethal Weapon movies. Right, but he's not. <laughs> but he's not at all. He's not at all that guy. And then I, I came, in coming up with the story that would uh, justify that, I came up with the idea of a uh, billionaire funding a private investigation uh, organization to uh, to be his employer. How did you, when you're coming off of, like, you're doing the Wizard 2.0 series, how did these spinoffs happen? Were they just, I'm going to do these on my own and self-publish? Or did a company, one of the companies come to you and be like, hey, can you do another book of, you know, something else? Well, I, I, when I did Master of Formalities, I had just written the first three. Um, I, I have the covers. I have the covers all up here on my wall is why I keep looking up when nice. I mention books. Um, I had just written the uh, first three wizard books, my first three novels, and I wanted to write something a little different. So I wrote Master of Formalities, and then I submitted it to my publisher, 47 North, and thankfully they liked it and they published it. And... Uh, then I wrote the, uh, I think I wrote the authorities, but 47 North is a, is a uh, science fiction. Uh, right. There's very little, extremely tiny bits of science fiction in it. It's, you know, actually the little things I had in it that were science fiction, like they were so light that they actually became, you know, reality within like two years. Okay. Like before the book was published drones were better than i had them in that book right um but anyway so i self-published the authorities and then i wrote run program and and they they published that and i was very happy about that but you know i've I've sort of done a mix of uh of self-published and published through uh either 47 north or through audible okay how did the authorities do since you know it didn't go through 47 north was it comparable or was it like oh gosh i don't you know if you uh, it has done well. It okay. has done well. It has been it has been a successful book. Great. Um, yeah, and uh, because it was completely uh, completely um, um, independent, uh, I was able to make a uh, an without getting too much right, in the right. weeds on the financial end of it. I was able to make a deal with Luke that I felt would uh, would uh, be a little. I don't know what Luke's usual deal is it gave me an opportunity to make sure that I was being fair to Luke and was thanking Luke right. for the, uh, for the, uh, the instrumental help to my success that he has been. Yeah. And I have, I, I actually have a draft of authorities too. 
oh. that is just waiting for me to uh, go through the editing process. And then, you know, Luke and I have not discussed it. I hope he'll be available to uh, to narrate it as well. Yeah, well, um, maybe we'll find out more, when, you know, in a couple of months when we when we chat with Luke. I won't bring it up to him. I'll let you bring it up to him. If yeah, he brings yeah, it up. Please do. If he brings it up, then. <laughs> I don't want him to discover this violence. <laughs> he'll, yeah. be listening to, he'll be listening to the podcast just to prep to make sure he's coming on and be like, oh, is he? Well, <laughs> we're going to rake him over the coals. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, you've already told people I'm narrating it. Am I? <laughs> well, I guess I'm getting 90% of the take then. Right. <laughs> um. You, you mentioned run program when you were talking yeah. about some of them and that is uh, it's like a from what I understand it's like a AI unit is trying to learn human behavior right yes and yeah. it goes kind of wrong or it yes. doesn't go exactly as it goes the, like the AI usually does in a pretty much any story <laughs> the incredibly original story of an AI gone wrong yes it's a uh, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, the, uh, like I said, it's not, it's not the most original of concepts. If you just boil it down to right. an AI becomes self-aware and things but begin the, to go wrong. But the, the concept the you know, the more detailed concept, it is very unique. So though, still, because usually an AI is it's, it's a robot and you don't assign it to anything but this it's like kind of assigned like this childlike mentality yeah. and it throws temper tantrums and you know all of the like and anybody who has kids probably yeah. won't want to relive this th that part of their life but that's kind of the idea right yeah well there were there were two different competing ideas that i had when i started that mm -hmm. book one was that everyone's always worried that ai will try to kill us when it becomes smarter than us but i think if an ai is smarter well first of all assuming that if an AI becomes smart, the first thing it's going to do is get rid of us, just speaks of low self-esteem. You know, it, it just it just shows that we don't think much of ourselves. Right. Um, but secondly, uh, I don't think that a uh, that a creature that is, is an intelligence that is smarter than us will necessarily think I must kill all the humans. It'll think of a way to manipulate us and maybe even make things better, uh, you know, not necessarily for us, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, at the very least, we'll end up as batteries. The Matrix taught us that. Uh, but but uh, but I think when we're going to be in danger is when I reach when AI reaches the intelligence level of about a twelve-year-old. Right. Because a twelve-year-old will mess you up. A twelve-year-old thinks nothing of destroying you. Right. And that is that is when. So I thought you know instead of the AI being smarter than us, make the AI a kid. And that that would be interesting. And also, I had been reading a lot about uh, the the city of Shenzhen and the uh, the area around Hong Kong. Okay. And the just incredible economic growth, uh, population explosion, and the 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 combination of the tremendous technical capability of the factories that have been built there and their complete disregard for copyright law. And uh, <laughs> I thought that that would be an interesting thing to uh, to fold into it. So, so without getting too heavy into spoiler uh, yeah. territory, the uh, the AI ends up using the city of Shenzhen basically to self replicate uh, mechanical bodies for itself. Okay, and that is uh, narrated by Angela Da Da. Yes. Day? Yes. I, 
I, I, I see we can da. da. Okay. I hope it's da. Yeah. I believe so, it is da. And uh, yeah, as you said, yeah, does a great job as well. Excellent job. First, I my and I. This may just be my weird thing, but my first thought was that she actually had sort of a Gillian Andersony thing okay. going on in her delivery for a few of the characters, which, which you know, I like. Yeah, but kind yeah. of works. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about your newest book. Yes. Grand Theft Astro, which just the name alone makes me titter a little bit. Oh, thank um, you. And it's 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 narrated by Elizabeth Evans. Yes. Who also has done a fantastic job. And um, now I have to admit, I haven't gotten to, gotten to this one yet. I'm very excited to get to it because it's like the main protagonist is my kind of character. From what I understand, maybe a spy, thief, kind of trying to get away from something they didn't do, even though yeah. they probably did do it. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's let's let's. Yeah. Give us a little bit more detail on this one, because this one is one I haven't gotten to, but I, I it's on my list. It's actually downloaded. It's I haven't just started it yet. It uh, it takes place in the distant future. Mm-hmm. Uh, mankind has explored and colonized the solar system, but has not gone beyond the solar system. Okay, uh, except as it's exploration. Don't really get into that in the book. But the point is, we have fully colonized the solar system. And uh, the attempt was to do sort of a uh, sort of a globe-trotting spy, you know, uh, crime, crime story sort of a thing, but in the solar system instead of on the globe. Okay. <clears throat> and my uh, my le- my main character is a woman named Baird, who is I picture her late thirties, early forties, and she is a uh, a cat burglar, who is notorious. Uh, for for doing these tremendous audacious crimes, but for having never even been charged with a crime. She's been arrested a few times. They've never been able to prove enough to even bother charging her, let alone trying her. And uh, she, uh, as such, is one of the most you know, notorious criminals in the solar system, even though technically she is not a criminal uh, as far as the law is concerned. And she sort of moonlights for a uh, for a uh, an intelligent private intelligence firm called the toolbox things go wrong uh, and she ends up um, she ends up infected with a man-made virus that the toolbox is trying to help her cure that will kill her if she's kept out of stasis for too long but they need her skills as a thief to get the things they need in order to work on her cure so they keep, you know, even though she only has technically a week to live, they keep waking her up for a day and a half to do this job. So every time they wake her up, in theory, it gets her closer to a cure, but it also gets her closer to death. So, nice. yeah, so it's just sort of has competing, uh, competing problems. So how did you come up with this one? Because the other ones you mentioned, like they, they came, you know, come from a little bit of doom a little yeah. bit of the Rockford files. Was there an yeah. inspiration for this one? Or is this just all like, Hey, I got this idea. Yeah. No one thing, no one thing on this one. I mean, I love a good heist. Mm-hmm. I love a good heist story. Uh, I had read some Donald Westlake, specifically the Dortmunder books, which are, which are crime books, but they're about a group of, uh, of, uh, um, um, bank robbers and burglars for whom everything always goes wrong. And uh, and Barrett is not someone for whom everything always goes wrong, 
but there is a comedic edge to her uh, to her uh, her heists because it is well planned and well executed as they are because you know Murphy's law nothing ever really works the way right. you expect it to well that was going to be my next question was how much humor is put into this series compared to some of the other ones I I and this is just my weird thing I kind of almost don't see the point of writing something unless I am trying to be funny right you know really humor is my primary motivator in doing things so everything I've written has been a comedy uh, it's, it's just some have been a little more you know, rapid fire than others. And this is, I'd say tone-wise, this is about on a par with the Magic 2.0s. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What, uh, do you have other other books that you're working on currently? Stuff in the works that you can talk about? Obviously, some people can't talk about what they're working on. Uh, I do have some stuff that, uh, that I probably should not uh, talk about too much. I have a book that I'm very proud of that is out, uh, running doing the rounds of editors right now seeing if anyone wants to publish it called brute force okay um like i said i'm extremely proud of that and i just finished the first draft of something that i don't want to get too much into the details of but it's um it involves it's it's sort of a sort of a uh it's my version of an x-files um an x-files or kolchak the night stalker sort of monster of the week thing okay Awesome. Did you uh, did you ever think ahead of time when you were coming out with these books, like this is my life in the past, and then take these little bits of all the things you've done, you know, stand up comedy, yeah. DJ, and be like, and taking bits and pieces from those and putting them into your stories, or was it not at all that way? It's never deliberate, but it kind of can't be helped. Right. I mean, Grand Theft Astro doing a story about someone who is in a different, you know, different city, essentially, every day. That is very much like being a, uh, a comedy doing a, a comedian doing a tour. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, Master of Formalities, you know, the uh, my main character is basically a space butler, but he has a trainee. And my my time being a trainer at Walt Disney World informed the relationship between wallard and fee his trainee okay you know it's it, you, you sort of can't help but use the thing the life experiences that you've had to inform the fictional people you're creating when you go through and you're writing these do you do you prefer to do like an outline do you like write out kind of what you're doing or do you just have an idea and you just sit down and start writing i need an outline i i cannot i'm not comfortable even trying to write without an outline okay. i know there are people who who just go by the seat of their pants i'm amazed by it right i don't know how they do it um i to me uh the outline is like the road map that i need when i go on a uh, on a road trip you know i can i can then once i have a good plan then i can deviate from the plan but i need that plan in place to begin with when you're putting them together do you uh do you think ahead do you look ahead at your narrators for your audiobooks and try and put stuff in there do you keep that cognizant or do you go it's a book first and it's for reading copies first and then what the narrators do the narrators do or do you sometimes go oh this would sound a lot better in an you know in an audiobook or a narrated fashion i should rewrite this paragraph or rearrange how it's said so that it sounds better in an audiobook form obviously you have a lot of ties to audiobooks so that is true and and audiobooks are very important 
but uh, but no, it's a book first. Okay, I have to treat it as a book first. That said, uh, when I'm when I'm preparing the book to become an audio book, uh, often uh, I and my editors will uh, go through and remove a lot of the dialogue attributions, a lot of the he said, she's she asked, okay, you know, that sort of thing, because there's no point in making the narrator say all those things because they're going to be doing different voices for the character right. anyway. It just becomes it becomes repetitive for the for the listener. It becomes tiresome for the reader, and it's a waste of everybody's time. So I'll I'll change that. Uh, as far as writing things that I think will be uh, will be fun in an audiobook, I just try to make it as good a book as I can, and hope that the that'll make it a good audiobook. That said, in Fight and Flight, the one with the dragons, I did create. Uh, a team of several uh, Scottish Highlanders just to force Luke to do four different Scottish voices <laughs> at the same time and have them have a conversation. And of course, being Luke, he knocked it out of right. the park. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> I, I did deliberately try to throw him a curveball. And that's hilarious. because So we've had a handful of Luke authors on and I can say... Well, I can't officially say, but I'm fairly certain that um, that every single one of them has done that at one point. Like, I just want to see what Luke does with this. I'm going to put yep. a city in here that is not pronounceable and see how he pronounces it. Uh, yeah. And of course, everybody, same thing. He knocked it yeah. out of the park. So, I did. I did ask him on the second authorities book if there was a specific accent that he really enjoys doing. Yeah, and then I then I worked that into it. Oh, okay. So so there's an Australian man who uh, is there just so Luke can do an Australian guy voice. Well, that's great. We're going to have to, when, when, do you know when that comes out or are you still? No, no, I'm still uh, working okay. on it. Yeah. He hasn't even seen it yet. Okay. So yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you are on Facebook, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Author Scott Mayer uh, or backslash author Scott Meyer. Yes. Ah, I, yes. I got it. I got yes. it. Yes. But I am not at all worried uh, you, you caught yourself. We're good. I got it. I got uh, it. It is M-E-Y-E-R, no S at the end, by the way, because there's, like I said, there's like 12 different spellings of Meyer. Right. And I think there's another person that writes like informational or like textbooks that's Meyers with an S at the yep. end that, that pops up uh, in the searches. Um, yep. Your website, scottmeyer.rocks. That's right. Okay. More people, more people should use the dot rocks. How, how did you go? Oh, I can have a dot com or I can have a dot rocks. Dot com was taken. Okay. I mean, you always go dot com if it's available. Right. But then looking at what else was available, I mean, we're way past just dot net, dot biz, and dot info. I mean, there's a bunch of other stuff now. Right. Well, and a lot of those, really, like, it feels, you know, dot biz and dot info and even dot net kind of feels in my. In my feeling, when I'm looking, I'm like, those feel kind of generic. But Dot Rocks, well, come on, that sounds custom right there. Yep, it's memorable. <laughs> well, I appreciate you stopping by. Um, and Thanks it's, for it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, when some of your other books come out there, we'll probably have to have you come back. Maybe, maybe, just maybe we can have you and Luke on at the same time. Uh, we'll we'll I would see. I'd love to come back alone or with Luke. So Either that way, would, be, would be great a lot of fun it's very appreciated uh we're glad to have you for those that are watching the live stream we will get to your live stream questions uh in just a bit 
So make sure to go ahead and throw your questions in that chat. Uh, but those of you listening to the podcast, listening live, uh, again, thank you very much for listening. I want to let you know what's coming up. March 7th, we've got game designer Nikki Valens. And they've worked on some of the most beloved modern board games that exist out there, such as Star Wars, Empire vs. Rebellion, Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror, Mansions of Madness, and many, many more. So join us March 7th for Nikki Valens. March 21st, from Discovery Plus's Paranormal Night Shift, host of Darkness Radio, Tim Dennis. He's been doing Darkness Radio for over 16 years, and he's going to be joining us to talk all things paranormal. So you want to make sure to join us for that. And April 4th, New York Times bestselling author Kirsten White. She wrote the Paranormal C-Series, The Conqueror Saga, Camelot Rising, Slayer, Star Wars Padawan, and many more. We're going to talk to her about her new book, Hide, and all of the things that uh, are hidden within that book series. So make sure to follow us, subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating and a review. It helps us get seen and in turn helps our amazing guests like Scott Meyer. Meyer, Meyer, I say it, Meyer, gosh darn it. I've been, I've, I've been reading your stuff for so long and listening to it for so long that like I have the name that I pronounced it wrong yeah. in my brain for so long. I gotta retrain my brain on that one. I know exactly how that is. So for Scott Meyer, I am Nick, and thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. Epic Realms.